Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I don't like this text very much. Uh, James has been pretty rough on us for the past couple of weeks. Uh, Starting next week, it does get a little bit better. If you're feeling a little beaten down, uh, it does get a little bit easier. But today, we've got another tough text that we have to deal with. Uh, During lunch with one of you this week, I was kind of lamenting how tough this passage is and and how hard it's going to be for us to say, uh, thanks be to God at the end of this reading, right? And I was asked, so what's your process? What do you do with tough passages? And I explained that there are certain sermon series that we do where where if a tough passage comes up, we can just switch it out for a different uh, passage or one that's a little easier to understand or one that's a little easier for us to tackle. But because we're going sequentially through the letter of James, we can't really do that. We have to deal with this passage. It brings me back to the times that I've read through the Bible or, or attempted to read through the Bible from cover to cover. Some of you have been through this before. There are certain points in that exercise where it's just like I can't possibly skim read fast enough, right? Because I just want to be over with this thing that just keeps beating me down. And I feel that a little bit this morning. I felt that a little bit this week as as I was studying this text. So there's a discipline for us when we feel that way as serious Bible readers, if we're serious Bible readers, which I hope we are. If we truly believe that this is the word of God, that that, that God has for us a word this morning, and it's from this text. And if we believe that God has led and prepared this church in the summer of 2018 to go through the book of James, which means we have to deal with this text at some point, and that he he loves us, and he cares for us, and he knows us, if if we believe that, then it's incumbent upon us to slow down and to read it over again and to ask for God's wisdom so that we can extract the truth that he would have for us from this passage. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to slow down. I want to read it again. I want to unpack it. And I want to ask, God, what do you have to say to us today? So let's let's do it together. There are two sections of this scripture that we have to deal with. And these two different sections are actually written to two different groups of people, but they're addressing a similar topic. We know that these two sections are tied together because they begin with the same words, now listen you. Now listen you, okay? The first section is, now listen you, wealthy merchants. And then that's in chapter 4, verses uh, 13 through 17. The second one is, now listen you, rich oppressors, rich exploiters. And that's in 5, verses 1 through 6. So I want to look at each of these sections individually, and then I've got a few common points between the two, and then that I think is going to lead us to some application for us. So the first one a word to wealthy merchants. Now that you know that it's about traveling merchants, maybe it changes the way we hear it. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go to this city, we're going to spend a year there, we're going to carry on business, we're going to make money. Why? Do you you not even know? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What's your life? It's a mist. It appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. 
So this is the section to these wealthy merchants. There is some question as to whether or not these merchants were part of the community that James is, is writing to, or even if they were Christians. I'm convinced that they're both. I think they were part of the Jerusalem community, and I think they were part of this church, and I believe that they were believers as well. And that James is really spending time reprimanding a group that he knows and that he has authority over. So we don't know if these merchants were seafaring international merchants of the day or they were domestic traveling merchants or a mix of both. But either way, I think the message to them is probably the same. Stop just doing your own thing. Going on your own way, making your profit without ever considering God's role in your work, your travels, your schedule. It's a passage that taps on a number of different themes like business and wealth and, and mortality and, and what, what is worth to us, what, what is worth something to us of value and, and even our tendency to boast. So it's a pretty dense passage and I think there's, there's some interesting things that we can glean from it. As Western Christians, we probably, uh, we certainly take for granted the necessity and expedience of buying and selling internationally. It's a part of our everyday life, the clothes we wear and the things that we uh, buy and, and the foods that we eat. But ancient opinion on merchant life was actually kind of mixed. Most of James's community would have actually looked down on these merchants because there were some moral complexities in the things that they were doing. There was, there was this fervor of Roman trade that, that was really serving the, the most elite of the elite and leaving the poor behind. And there were even some concerns that some people had in Christian communities of going, should we even be a part of this business? Should we be mixing with the business of the world? Is this a good thing for Christians to be doing? So for a culture that was 70 to 80 percent uh, people living near or under the, the basic substance level, the idea of merchants that are going to go somewhere for a year and accumulate wealth and, and forget about the needs of their own community, that was troublesome for the church. And remember, there was no form of, of overarching government welfare of any kind. So these merchants setting their own schedule, kind of doing their own thing, their own travel, without acknowledging the opportunities to give back to their community, to be benefactors of, 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 of this, to, to, and to kind of solely go on their own way, this was a problem for the church. It didn't speak very well to the work of Jesus in their lives, that they were going about their own things and forgetting, forgetting God. So that's the rebuke to... Merchants, and it's actually a pretty mild rebuke from James compared to his next words in chapter 5, uh, which are certainly James' most harsh words of his entire letter. And these words are addressed to a different group of people. James is condemning the actions of rich, uh, very wealthy, non-Christian uh, oppressors of day laborers in the church. In this church, he had day laborers, and, and this is a message to those who are employing them but not paying them fairly, oppressing them, making things difficult for them. So James pulls out all the stops in, uh, in these verses, in the grand styling of, of Old Testament uh, prophecy. Come now, you rich people, wail, weep for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, your clothes are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have rusted, the rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasures in the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields who you kept back by fraud, cry out and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived here on earth in luxury and in pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous one who did not resist you. That's a tough word. Now, 
Since it's written to non-Christians, I think it's fair for us to ask, um, if they're not Christians and they're not part of the community, are they even going to hear these words? It's sort of like me preaching some blistering sermon on uh, the debt problem we have in the state of Illinois, where I don't think we have any lawmakers, Illinois lawmakers, sitting here, right? Is this word ever going to get to the people who need to hear it? So why write it if they're not a part of the church? Well, James is writing these words for the people in the congregation, for those day laborers, for those who who have been through so much difficulty, so that they can understand that those people who are oppressing them, they're going to have to reckon with God's judgment for their evil deeds and and their unjust actions. He's condemning the actions of of these people that aren't even part of the community, so his congregation would know that James is standing with them and he's lamenting. Uh, the ways in which they've been marginalized. So when I read these passages, rich merchants, uh, or wealthy merchants and, and rich oppressors, my tendency is to gloss over them, to read them pretty quickly and absolve myself pretty quickly. After all, I am not a traveling merchant. It's not what I do for my work. I don't employ day laborers or misuse them in my life. I understand that, that some of you here are traveling merchants of a kind, maybe, as you think about your business. Maybe some of you employ day laborers, and, and maybe this passage rings true for you, but for me, I think I'm pretty good, right? I'm pretty clear on this one. But as soon as I start to feel that, that's when I know it's time to lean in further. It's time to lean in further to God's word. So as we look at these tough words from James, I, I want to offer three applications for me, and I think for you too. And just like last week, they're going to come in the form of confessions or admissions, a, a good long look in the mirror and and being willing to be honest about ourselves. So three true statements, and then I've got an illustration for each one so you can remember them. The first is this. Uh, We can be honest and say that we idolize our priorities to the point that we can forget about God. The merchants in chapter 4, despite being men of faith, were so set on where they were going to go and what they were going to do and how long they were going to stay there and what kind of profit that they could turn that they never stopped to wonder what God might say about their business dealings or their priorities. They had essentially busied themselves so much and scheduled themselves so much that they're squeezing God out of the bulk of their lives. And who suffers in that? Well, certainly they do because their relationship with God suffers if he's not a priority, but also those who need them, the poor, the the disenfranchised in their community that needed those resources and that time and, and, and the gifts that they had to bring, but their agenda was so important that it it pulled them away from the people who needed them. Last week, we talked about anger and, and what we're supposed to do with our anger. And, and I confess to you that anger is not my primary vice. Well, one of you uh, in the garden court uh, cornered me and said, so what is your vice? <laughs> um, I was taken a little bit off guard by that, but I answered honestly, my, my vice is gluttony. That's my vice. Um, I discovered this through the process of studying the Enneagram personality uh, tool. Gluttony is, is the, is the um, vice that I identified with. Now, gluttony is not overeating, though I can't say that I am perfectly uh, uh, absolved of that from, from time to time. But gluttony is defined this way uh, by the Enneagram Institute. An unquenchable appetite for new experiences, and the fixation is planning. A habitual way of focusing attention on the many pleasant possibilities for the future, including options and backup plans. Anybody identify with that? I identify with that strongly. Usually when I wake up, the first thing I'm thinking is, okay, how's my day going to go? And when am I going to get a little time for me just to breathe? 
uh, where am I going to have lunch and, and what am I going to order? Um, I've, got a, I've got a retreat that I do every fall with my three best friends up, in, up, a, up at a cabin. Um, that's like months away, and I think about it every day, right? It's like this carrot that I'm, uh, that's dangling in front of me, and I like having that in front of me. I like having those plans. Uh, they keep me going, and they keep me motivating. Now, not all of this is bad. Planning is not a bad thing. It's a fine thing. Looking forward to things is great. It's when we hoard these things and we squeeze God out of our plans that it becomes gluttonous and it ends up hurting ourselves and the people around us. One simple application is to constantly ask this question, does God have anything to say about my plans today, tomorrow, and in the future? Does God have anything to say? Have I asked him what he thinks about my plans? Here's my illustration for this. For years, we, uh, with our youth group, have offered a, a trip called the 12 trip. It's for incoming and outgoing seniors where we talk about what it means to follow Jesus in the college years ahead. And, and back in the day when, when I was leading that trip, uh, I, my favorite group was the undecided incoming seniors. I loved having conversations with them. Uh, and if any of you are sitting here and you're going to be a senior and you're undecided, I'd love to have a conversation with you. It's one of my favorites. I would ask the kind of questions that you normally ask. Well, what are you thinking? Are you thinking home or away? Big school, small school? Do you know what you want to study? All those kinds of questions. And I'd let them kind of share what their experience is and, and where they're at. And then I would, I would wait until they've kind of talked themselves out, and I would say, so I have a question. Do you think God has anything to say about your decision? There were a few bold students, very few bold students, who would go, no, I, I don't. This is my decision, and I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. But most of the students would kind of stumble and say, well, I, yeah, I mean, I guess I hadn't really thought about that, or I don't really know how to do that. And then I would lead them through a conversation and a prayer time, seeking God's wisdom for, for their plans. How often do we ask that question? God, what do you have to say about my plans? Have I taken time to listen to what you might have to say about the way that I, I'm thinking about today, tomorrow, and the future to come? It's a brilliant checks and balances system for us so that we're not just going our own way and leaving God behind. Because when we leave God behind, we may very well end up hurting other people and certainly hurting our relationship with God. I say to students, I believe that God has a campus for you to be on to use your gifts and your abilities. Second truth is we misevaluate our wealth, which is really silly of us because wealth is always relative. In September of 1606, there was a Portuguese cargo ship that was returning home, and it arrived at the mouth of, of, of a major river far, not far from Lisbon, and the ship was returning from a nine-month voyage. Its hulls were filled with a small fortune of goods that were being brought back from India. But before the ship could, could make anchorage in the harbor, uh, there was winds that came about it, and it, and, uh, it dragged it across the rocks, and the intensity of the collision caused the structure of the ship to fail catastrophically, and it sank. It settled into the riverbed in pieces. The hull uh, was somewhere off, um, off the cliffs where it remained for almost 400 years. And the ship became a thing of legend. Locals there would, for generations, speak of unspoken treasures in this, in this sunken ship not far from the shore. And maybe if we look close enough on a clear day, we might be able to see it or dive enough. In the 1950s, there were divers who began to dive, and, and they, they identified, we think we've got the hull of the ship here. And in 1996, the Portuguese Museum of Archaeology 
sponsored a very, very expensive excavation of a 100 square uh, meter site where the large section of the hull had settled. And there was a ton of excitement about when we open this up, what's the treasure going to be inside? The archaeologists, however, recovered a few pieces of stoneware, some porcelain, and only a handful of, of gold and silver coins. Instead, what they found were massive quantities of this, black peppercorns. In 1606, when that ship was coming home, it did carry a fortune. It was during the spice trade, and they were carrying millions and millions and millions of dollars of black pepper. And I think this is an incredible illustration for us because this is a vast treasure out of context, right? Something that we can find on every single table that we ever sit at, and it's worth almost nothing. <laughs> so it's worth asking, does God treasure what I treasure? Am I, am I treasuring the things of God? Do those things match up? What we treasure here in this life is, is nearly always guaranteed to not have lasting wealth. The stocks we hold, the assets we cling to, the business deals that we, that we value, the cars we drive, these are fleeting things. James uses the verbiage of our lives being a mist and our wealth is, is rusting or being eaten by moths. The cost of our wealth accumulation oftentimes isn't worth it. Our families and our friends pay. Those who work for us pay for it. The resources that we use up in the accumulation of that wealth doesn't add up. And for what? We can't take this stuff from this life, the archeological investment in, in, in the millions of what they call the pepper wreck now was something that was only valuable in context. It's not valuable now. And as Jesus himself said, let's store up for ourselves, not on earth where, must, where, where moth and, and rust can destroy, but let's see the kingdom of God as our wealth and let's set our value system to his priorities. The last truth, we have too much stuff. James doesn't condemn wealth. I want you to hear that. James does not condemn wealth or saving or investing, but what he does condemn is hoarding and waste and exploitation. He comes down hard on selfishness and self-indulgence. What's frightening to think of is what he might say to our culture now if he was saying this to that culture then, a culture where we have walk-in closets because we can't fit all of our clothes, or, or we tear down perfectly good houses to build another one, or, or we hold on to massive amounts of credit card debt just so we can get by month to month. I mean, we need to be careful not to minimize the difference between a largely capitalistic world today and the first century Mediterranean economy of, of limited goods. But I, I still shudder to think of if, if James had the pulpit this morning and we said, hey, could you expound on this, what he might say to me and to us? So uh, a corrective for that for us is to ask this question. What can I give to someone in need that would be of high value for them? What can I give to someone in need that's not just my, my, my hand-me-downs, the things that, that aren't valuable at all, but what would be really valuable to them that I could give? I was thinking about this as I was dropping off one of those, a couple of those hand-me-down bags of clothes at Goodwill this week. And, and at the same time, I'm getting texts about a, a story in our community. Kirsten Jepson, um, we've been praying for her surgery for a couple of weeks. And this week, this woman who lost her son last year to a, in a tragic passing and watched his organs be donated to, to several people in need, donated her kidney this week. Here's a picture of her with a potential donor. And she actually didn't give her kidney for this 
woman, she has a friend who needs a kidney. And her rationale was, if I give my kidney, that means my friend gets notched up one name on the list. How beautiful is that? I mean, if she can do this, doesn't it put our hoarding into perspective? What can we give others in need that would be of high value to them? So is this a challenging text? Yes, absolutely. Is it uncomfortable? Yeah, it's uncomfortable. When you hear it, it's jarring. But I hope you feel that when we sit with the text, when we lean further into the text and we ask the tough questions, something really awesome happens. We start to see these words as less of a threat, less accusatory, less shaming, and we see it more as high standards from a loving God. God wants us to ask these questions, these three questions. Does God have something to say about my plans? Am I treasuring what God treasures? What can I give to someone in need that would be of high value to them? He wants us to ask these questions not because he's shaming us, but because when we ask these questions, we're living a rich life. It's not good for our hearts and our minds and our souls to forget God and, and prioritize him out of our lives. It's not good for us to overlook the needs of others. It's not good for us to chase fleeting wealth. It's not good for us to hold on to our stuff. It's not good for our souls. And God knows that about us. And the Christian life calls us to seek God's priorities, the wealth of God's kingdom, and the welfare of others. And here's the cool thing. This passage that is, that is so tough, right, that we, that we initially want to gloss over, we realize that it's actually an invitation to an abundant life. It's actually a really hopeful text. The more that I sit with it, the more I see life teeming in it. And that's why we take God's word seriously. Because even the toughest passages, the toughest words, the ones that are hardest to understand, they have pearls of wisdom that lead us to Jesus, and they're reflective of him. Do you notice as you're looking at these questions, this is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who always sought God's plan for his life who sought God's sustenance for each day rather than, than, than prioritizing God out of his life, God the Father. This is someone who didn't store up his treasures on earth, but rather in heaven. And this is someone who gave and gave and gave again, even his very life fully for you and for me. Praise be to God, and may we follow in Jesus' example. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the way in which your word speaks, which is mysterious and sometimes difficult for us. But I thank you that even in the difficult text, there is an invitation. There's an opportunity. So Lord, I, I want to recognize that in myself and and in my friends here today, these brothers and sisters for the journey, I want to ask, God, do you have something to say about my plans for this day or tomorrow or a couple months from now or for my future? Do you, have I been shutting you out, Lord? Have my ears been shut to the ways in which you're trying to speak into my plans? Have I given you the space to bless them and to move them forward. Lord, 
I want my plans, my, my priorities to be yours. So would you reorder them in any way you need to, Lord, for your sake? God, I want to ask, am I, am I treasuring what you am, am I treasuring what you treasure? Lord, what things have I put great value on that just are not valuable to you? Because I want to release those. I want to let those go. I want to stop investing in those things if they're not of value to you, Lord. I want, I want the things that are of great value to you to be the things that are of great value to me. So would you correct me? Would you teach me? Would you put me on the right path? And Lord, would you take a look at all that that I have, all that you've given to me, all the things that I tend to accumulate that I don't really need. And would you make clear to me things that I can give, whether it's my, my money, my time, or resources to someone in need where they would find that really, really valuable? Would you open my eyes to ways in which I can give? Lord, as I ask these questions, I, I recognize that you are in the work of molding me and, and all of us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, who sought you first, whose treasure was in heaven, who gave himself for us. So would you give us the courage to follow, Lord? Would you give us the courage to walk in the footsteps of the author and perfecter of our faith who gave so much for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.